Hey people, welcome again to Steve-O's Music News. I am your host, Steve Orchard. Glad to have you aboard again for our weekly chat about music and the charts. And we're on the usual platform, so I do appreciate your support. Well, got a variety of things I want to talk about today. And one thing that, uh, well, I'd like to thank my daughter, Sarah, again, for getting me all set up here. We are we are now eyeing up a special mic. We haven't got it yet, but we're looking at one, so hope to get that uh, very soon. And just like my radio gig, it, it always feels better when you actually have a microphone right in front of you. We're using a condenser mic right now. That was my phone that just uh, stopped right down there and fell down. So right off the bat, I'd like to talk about uh, the new Barry Gibb album. Bee Gees leader Barry Gibb, yeah, he has announced a new album called Greenfields, the Gibb Brothers Songbook Volume 1. It's inspired by Barry's lifelong love of country and bluegrass music. It's a 12-track album. He has got a number of notable guests, Dolly Parton, Sheryl Crow, Alison Krauss. In fact, he's already released one song with... Uh, country guy by the name of Jason Isbell, kind of an independent artist, I, I think. The song is called Words of a Fool. That was originally an unreleased Barry Gibb song back from 1986. Album is due on January 8th, 2021. 2021. It's via Capital. In fact, uh, the Bee Gees are no strangers to a little bit of country music. They had a song that is actually on the album that is in a newer form. They reached number 39 on the country charts back in early 1979 with a song called Rest Your Love On Me. And that is also done in duet form with Olivia Newton-John. And uh, so it's nice to have that on there. Barry says, from the first day we stepped into the RCA studios in Nashville, the very place where Elvis, Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, the Everly Brothers and so many other legends made their magic. The album took on a life of its own. He's talking about that in a press release. Jason Isbell says, Barry Gibb is one of the greatest songwriters and singers in popular music history. I'm happy to say he still has that beautiful voice and that magical sense of melody. Working with him on this project has been one of the great honors of my career. He is a prince. Now, the last time that Barry Gibb put an album out, it was four years ago, called In the Now. It came out in actually October of 2016. It got to number 63 on the Billboard album charts, but it did reach the top 10 in England, Scotland, New Zealand, and Australia. Some of the songs on there, in fact, it looks like it's uh, 12 songs strong. Guests include Keith Urban helping out on I've Gotta Get a Message to You. Alison Krauss duetting on Too Much Heaven. That was the number one song in early 1979. Dolly Parton helping out on Words. And Cheryl Crow with How Can You Mend a Broken Heart. Again, that album is due on dropping, as they say, on January 8th. It's called Greenfields, the Gibb Brothers Songbook. Bee Gees also in the news. HBO has confirmed that their documentary movie, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart, will premiere on December 12th and going to be streaming on HBO Max. There is a teaser clip that is out there and available. 
It previews how the director explored the triumphs and hurdles of the brothers, Barry Morris and Robin Gibb, the iconic trio who found early fame in the 60s. Get this, they went on to write over 1,000 songs, including 20 number one hits throughout their storied career. This film will follow the Bee Gees' meteoric rise as they rode the heights of fame and fortune. And I'll tell you what, there was uh, they were unbeatable in the late 70s. Six number one singles in a row in 78 and 79. Last year, it was revealed that Bohemian Rhapsody producer Graham King had signed up to uh, lead that uh, Bee Gees biopic project. Later on, it was reported that Steven Spielberg was also producing with Anthony McCartan, who was also involved with Bohemian Rhapsody, working on the script. So they're all very privileged to do this. Look for that premiering on December 12th at 8 o'clock Eastern Time and also streaming on HBO Max, a Bee Gees documentary. How about a little bit of rock and roll news for you right now? I found this kind of interesting today. Everybody remembers the classic album by ACDC called Back in Black. Well, Metallica also did their own black album. They wanted to do an album that was basically its own take on ACDC's classic Back in Black. So I found this story in the news. I thought it was interesting. I wanted to share it with you. Uh, guitarist Kirk Hammett, along with drummer Lars Ulrich, recalled the challenges of moving into the new decade as the grunge revolution began and they were struggling to find common ground with producer Bob Rock. Hammett says in an interview, quote, it wasn't easy to make as we wanted a certain sound on that album. We wanted everything to be the best that it possibly could be sound-wise, song-wise, performance-wise. So we went in, and I'll probably be the first person to mention this, we wanted to come up with a Back in Black, an album that was stacked with singles, songs which sound like singles, but aren't necessarily singles. Yorick said that the band felt it had taken the music play during the 80s about as far as it could go. He said they needed a reset, so we sat down and thought about the Misfits, ACDC, even the Rolling Stones. The challenge was to write shorter songs, a little more bounce to make the music more physical than cerebral. Hammock reflected that while the grunge movement changed the look and style of a lot of bands and how bands should be at the time, that didn't affect Metallica in any negative way. He says, if I'd been listening to the first Soundgarden, or rather, I had been listening to the first Soundgarden album since 1987, I didn't think of it as grunge so much as a kind of a black Sabbathy type of album. So grunge was calling foul on these other bands, but because we were ourselves, we never felt that we were scrutinized. One of the biggest issues was changing their working methods to accommodate that producer. I said his name was Bob Rock, noting that they'd never been in the studio with someone who was as challenging as he was. The good news it was Bob was very encouraging of us, expanding our processes. The bad news was... And this was Metallica. They always said they were like this. They were not very open to having anyone tell us what to do. When we walked out of the studio a year later with the black album in our pockets, I don't think any of us ever thought we'd see each other again. But guess what? We ended up spending the next 10 to 12 years 
making records together. The album did become their biggest. Numbers-wise, it spent four weeks at number one, stayed on the Billboard album charts for 281 weeks. It sold 15 million copies and won a Grammy for Best Metal Performance with Vocals at the 1992 Awards. So ACDC has their Black Album. Metallica has their album. And I found that very interesting as we look back at something that came out way back in 1991. Well, here is an ominous anniversary from 31 years ago this past Friday, November 6th. That is when Dickie Goodman committed suicide at the age of 55. His novelty records were unique, funny, they made us laugh. He left behind a legacy of 17 novelty flying saucer records. These were records that included drop pieces from then current hit songs. In fact, all of his records were basically called flying saucer records because his breakthrough hit with uh, partner Bill Buchanan was called uh, The Flying Saucer Parts 1 and 2. That record went to number three back in 1956. It spawned a follow-up that reached number 18 in 1957 called Flying Saucer the Second. Dickie Goodman split up the duo back in 1961. He continued charting on his own with these breaking records through 1977. The biggest included 1973's Water Great. That got to number 42. Energy Crisis 74 reached, uh, reached number 33. 1977's Kong which reached number 48, and his million seller from 1975, Mr. Jaws, got to number four. Now, that 19-year span between that one and 1956's The Flying Saucer still believed to be the record for the longest gap in between pop top 10 hits. Now, Dickie also produced Flying Saucer hits for others, including Superfly Meets Shaft by John and Ernest. That got to number 31 in 1973. And all of the song clips used were hits by black artists. That was interesting. He also had a number 32 hit in 1957 called Santa and the Satellite, obviously geared for the Christmas season. I was fortunate enough to interview, not Dickie, but I interviewed his son, his son John Goodman, that was back around 1997. He actually was had saved all of his dad's uh, old tapes and things like that. They ended up putting out, uh, or did, John did anyways, an album on CD called Dickie Goodman and Friends, Greatest Fables. All of the songs. In fact, these songs weren't always that long, maybe two, two and a half minutes in length. The CD at the time, if you can even find this, I don't even know if it's in print anymore. You might want to check iTunes or things like that, if nothing else. Uh, he did one called The Flying Saucer 1997 version. I don't remember a whole lot about, about the interview because, again, I did that back in 1997 with John Goodman. Uh, but, again, it was kind of a, an infamous thing. Dickie Goodman committing suicide at the age of 55. Look for that though if, if you want to you know jump into some of the novelty songs and have fun. Mr. Jaws, uh, still a favorite. I use that occasionally from time to time for my forgotten 45. 
Got a recent birthday to mention. This guy, John Henry Ramistella, turned 78 on Saturday, November 7th. Okay, so he didn't go by that name. Stage name of Johnny Rivers. He may, in fact, I believe he is the runner-up king of the remakes, with at least 15 of them becoming charted hits. Now, if I'm correct in my counting, Donny Osmond had 13, so the race is close. Johnny Rivers had 15. Elvis leads with 19. And then next after Donny Osmond, it would be Linda Ronstadt with 13 and Aretha Franklin with 12. A little bit of background. Johnny Rivers founded Soul City Records, which in turn introduced us to the fifth dimension. And while he had all of those remakes, his biggest hit wasn't one. Poor Sided Town, which Johnny co-wrote with Lou Adler, was his only number one hit from about this time in 1966. And another interesting fact about another one of his songs, Summer Rain, has a mistake on it, somewhat technically. The lyric line in the song was impossible to happen. There's a line that says, and the jukebox kept on playing Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Well, what's interesting about that, because jukebox has only played 45 RPM singles uh, when that Beatles album was released. There were no 45s released from it, so that song was never a 45. I wonder how many people ever picked up on that. The last time Johnny Rivers had a pop hit was when he climbed to number 41 for one week in February of 1978 with Curious Mind, the Um Um song, which was the follow-up to his number 10 single, Sway Into the Music, which came out in late 1977. Again, Johnny Rivers recently turning 78 years of age. All right, so on Wednesday night, in fact, that would be last night, the CMAs honored the soundtrack to the 1980 movie Urban Cowboy. That starred John Travolta and Deborah Winger. I think it was Old Dominion that ended up uh, doing a tribute, but I want to take a, a little bit more of a, a dive into that movie and the soundtrack a little bit about that because... It was huge on both the pop and the country charts. It came on like gangbusters when it was first released back in 1980. It fired up a Western craze all over the country. It changed trends in music, fashion, and the nightlife. Much of that film was shot at the massive Gillies Club in Pasadena, Texas. It was partly owned by country singer Mickey Gilly. The club was famed for its expansive dance floor and supercharged in the form of a mechanical bowl for those that wanted to seek the thrill or tell you what maybe it's maybe it's the pain of a of a real rodeo but not long after gilly style clubs complete with mechanical bowls of their own shot up seemingly overnight in every major city in America, Western wear became the apparel of choice, at least on the weekends. Couples were springing to the dance floors. They were dancing the two-step and the Cotton Eye Joe to the, uh, the sounds of country back then. Now, thanks to the soundtrack, country music was at the top again. The album rose to number one on the country charts starting August 2nd, 1980. It stayed there for an incredible eight weeks. The album also landed at number three 
on the all-genre Billboard 200. Stayed there for a couple of weeks, spent 47 weeks on the charts. And just a couple of years ago, it was finally certified for sales of more than 3 million copies. Mickey Gilly was featured prominently in the movie and on the soundtrack. He performed his cover of the Ben E. King soul hit Stand By Me. And if I'm not mistaken, that got to number 22 on the pop charts. He had an older song also on there called Here Comes the Hurt Again. And here's a guy that had tallied seven number one singles through 1977. And then he went through a bit of a dry period, but Urban Cowboy changed all of that. Gilly will tell you about that. Stand By Me took number one, uh, the number one spot in August of 1980. And then he had four subsequent singles, all going to the top. Gilly's Club became a favorite watering hole for celebrities from music and the film. Gilly would say, quote, what a great ride that movie gave me. It turned around my music career. I did movies. I did television. In fact, I did The Fall Guy, Murder, She Wrote, among others. And I also got a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. It was all because of that movie. But perhaps nobody benefited more from the whole urban cowboy mania than Texas-born singer Johnny Lee. He had already been a proven club attraction around the Lone Star State, but he had struggled to find any sort of success on the singles charts throughout the 70s. His highest-charting single came in 1977 with a song called Country Party, which was actually the same song that Rick Nelson had, his pop hit Garden Party, with rewritten lyrics. That had come out back in 72. As fate would have it, Lee was a regular performer at Gillies at the time the film was being made. And while going through some tapes, he uncovered a song titled Looking for Love, took to it immediately, sang it in the movie. The single was released in July of 1980 and spent three weeks at number one. Johnny says, quote, that song just hit me. It did wonders for my career. I got to play the Grand Ole Opry, became friends with a lot of notable singers. I never dreamed that I would get to know some of those artists that I had admired, some of them including like Bill Anderson, Jack Green. I always say the Lord sent me that song. Yeah, three weeks at number one on the country charts, got to number five on the Billboard pop charts. And Johnny went on to have other hits. His song called One in a Million, also taught that was a direct follow-up to looking for love also topped the charts and then he went on to score three additional number ones during the middle 80s so a little more about the soundtrack and its legacy and murray let me see let's let me back this up a little bit there were four songs that were big hits that were kind of newer songs but six songs that went to the top 40 on the pop charts I mean, what John Travolta did for disco in 1977 with Saturday Night Fever, he pretty much did the same thing with the Urban Cowboy soundtrack. Murray's Could I Have This Dance, I said Anne Murray, was released as a single. It went to number one. It crossed over to become a number 33 pop hit. She would get a Grammy for Best Country Vocal Performance for a Female in 1981. Another cut from the soundtrack, All Night Long by rocker Joe Walsh, uh, never showed up on the country charts. However, it has been a staple at classic rock radio even 40 years down the road. 
Kenny Rogers got himself a number four country hit with Love the World Away, prominently displayed in the movie. Went to number 14 on the pop charts. Boz Skaggs also hit number 14 with his song called Look What You Have Done To Me. Johnny Lee generally gets a little bit uptight at references to fads or trends when applied to the urban cowboy movement. Uh, he really wasn't, you know, all on board with that. The soundtrack did very well. Again, there were a number of hits on the country charts, on the pop charts, although there were detractors. Purists considered it too pop, often throwing in such, well, such comments as bland and kind of boring for extra measure. Um, but I'll tell you what, it did, uh, it did help country artists like Randy Travis, Reba McIntyre, Dwight Yoakam, and others. They came along in the later 80s. They had their own particular takes on traditional country and bringing the format back to its roots. But there's no doubt that Urban Cowboy and its offshoots dominated the first half of the 1980s. Mickey Gilly would go on to say, I think the soundtrack helped bridge the gap between country and pop. There were some great acts that came out of that era like George Strait. The movie influenced what people wore. Everybody all over the country who saw that movie started wearing cowboy hats and jeans. Well, as I mentioned, a couple of years ago in 2018, the Recording Industry Association of America certified the soundtrack for sales of 3 million copies. And again, it was fun uh, last night. As I record this, it's on a Thursday, November 12th. It sure was fun to see the album celebrated and honored at this year's CMAs. All right, so we're about done again for another episode here. Don't forget, you can catch me live on the air Monday through Friday on Frog Country 101.5. We are streaming live 24-7 in the States. I, I know my, my cousin in England tried to pick it up and it wasn't able to be picked up overseas. So if you're in the States... You can go right to www.wjnrradio.com. We're also on Alexa. Say, hey, Alexa, play WJNR Radio. I also want to steer you. Oh, let me back it up. I also do that uh, shift 2 to 7, generally Monday through Friday. Also, I'd like to steer you to listen to my Forgotten 45. That comes out three times a week on our Classic Hits channel, WHTO. That is also something you can stream 24-7, whtoradio.com. My Forgotten 45 airing 7.45 Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Generally a song that you're not necessarily going to hear anymore. Uh, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at about 7.45. Again, on what we call the Mountain Classic Hits 106.7. Check out the usual platforms. Thanks to my daughter, Sarah, again. For the technical help, it's Steve-O's Music News. We'll catch you again next time around right here. Have yourselves a great day.